Sometimes you come to church and you don't really hear something revolutionary. This is going to be one of those days. We should listen to Jesus. There you go. <laughs> Wait a minute. It's so weird. I was at church in the sermon and the guy said, we should listen to Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, we should listen to Jesus. Uh, the, this section of Revelation, we have these seven letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, how, we, how should we understand these letters? These letters are given, again, as we'll find out very clearly, not just to these seven churches. They're given to all of the church. And sometimes, I think even commentators have uh, mistakenly tried to pigeonhole particular churches here as like, you know, time frames in history. And, you know, the church at Ephesus was this time frame, and the church at such and such was so, so on and so forth, this time frame. Uh, but I, that's not what's going on here, okay? These letters are given for our benefit today. Okay, Jesus wants us to learn from these specific churches. Now, these were real churches in Asia Minor, as we'll go over in a minute. But when Jesus speaks, we should always listen. That's why we, we hold his word highly. But especially when Jesus speaks to the church. When Jesus says, this is what I want to say to the church, we, as the church, our ears should perk up, right? We, we should go, yes, we need, to, we need to hear from Jesus. We belong to him. He is our head. He is our shepherd. He is the one who has purchased us by his blood. And so when he commends us and says, hey, these are things you're doing that are good, we should say, awesome, let's keep doing those things. And when Jesus says, I've got some concerns, here are some things that you need to be careful of. We need to listen. And as we go through these letters week by week here, we'll take, of course, seven weeks to go through the seven letters. As we unpack them one at a time, we'll see in each church, we'll see there's commendations. And in almost all of them, there are some concerns that Jesus brings. And as he does this, he does this for our benefit. It's kind of like a spiritual room check. When I was in college, I served as an RA, and I had the glorious responsibility of doing room checks. Uh, you know what a room check is? It's where you actually have to like, check to make sure that the room is moderately clean. For college-age men, that was my job. And I use the term men very loosely there. Uh, you know, so I'd be like, I'd be like, listen, I'm giving it all away here. I'd be like, listen, I'm going to do room checks tomorrow at this exact time. Everybody, I'm doing room checks in seven minutes. <laughs> you have this. Okay, did you make your bed? Yeah, you passed. Okay, good job. So, uh, you know, the room check's only as good as the one doing the room check. That's a fact. <laughs> the seven letters uh, from Jesus to the churches are kind of like spiritual room checks. It's Jesus saying, hey, let's take a look around. Let's see how you're doing. So as we get into these verses, I just want to ask you that very question. How are you doing spiritually? Maybe you're here this morning and you're growing. You're in a season of growth spiritually, and you're like, I am so excited about Jesus. I cannot wait to hear what Jesus says here in these verses. Like, I am pumped. Let's do this. Let's go. Why don't we have church every day? You're my people. Love you, right? Yeah. But probably more realistically, some of us may be here this morning, and we're, maybe we're stalled a little bit spiritually. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the Lord, I think, and, you know, I've, I know I've grown in ages past, but today, frankly, I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of existing. Like, I made it here, so that was, that was good. But I've just kind of stalled out spiritually. And we need to hear from Jesus, don't we? To be encouraged, to grow. Maybe you're here and you'd say, you know what, frankly, I'm not stalled, I'm struggling. I, I am not doing well. I'm having a hard time with this specific circumstance in my life. 
And I, and I, I know I've, I sing the songs and I've heard these verses before, but frankly, I'm just struggling to live it. I'm struggling to believe, struggling to love God and love people. And if you're here this morning and that's your circumstance, these words are also for you. To bless you, to encourage you, to challenge you. And so, no matter who we are this morning, there's something for us in the letter to Ephesus from Jesus here in Revelation 2. So, let's unpack the, these verses together and take a look at what's going on. So, at the end of chapter 1, we have this glorious revelation of Jesus that he gives to the Apostle John, where he shows himself in his glory in particular ways, again, emphasizing his sovereignty over creation and the fact that he had risen from the dead. He holds the keys uh, to death. He is the one working in the churches. He talks about how these, he's got these seven stars, which represent seven angels, and those angels minister to the churches. And so Jesus is saying, yes, I love the church. I'm ministering to the church. I'm with you. I'm working with you. I haven't abandoned you. And so there's this encouragement there and that vision of Jesus at the end of chapter 1. And then we pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. And so here's the first letter, the letter to Ephesus. John writes, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, before we get too deep in this, let's get to the, uh, to the map so we know where we are. All right, so this is, uh, I'm going to show you this every week just to remind you, but here's the deal. John is in exile on Patmos for his faith. Because he is an apostle preaching the gospel, he was punished. Okay, we don't know the details of it, but we know that that's what was going on. So he's there in exile, can't leave. Now, he's written this letter. It's a circular letter, so all the churches will get all the letters. And that's one of the hints that we know this is not just for one church in one place. This is for all the church, right? But so the letter's going to be passed along in the order, roughly, of the postal route of the day. Ephesus is the biggest town. It's right here. It would, be on, it would have been on the coast. Ephesus is the biggest town, um, in, really the biggest city in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire, like uh, approaching half a million people. Massive trade center. Definitely the first stop uh, for the mail would have been to get to Ephesus, okay? So the church at Ephesus faced a particularly difficult situation because Ephesus was a massive city known for its devotion to the goddess Artemis or Diana. And so there was this, uh, you remember in Acts, there was a lot of drama when the gospel first got there because the, the authorities in Ephesus were complaining that the preaching of the gospel was hurting sales of the idols of Artemis. People were believing in Jesus and stopped buying these idols. And so there was a pushback, major pushback from the culture in Ephesus against Christians. Like, it's kind of like, listen, I don't really care what you believe, but you're hurting our business. So you're causing our economy to go down. People are losing jobs because of you Christians. So there was a lot of of headwind blowing against the church at Ephesus. All that to say, uh, here, Jesus speaks to John and says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So this is the message uh, that that the church at Ephesus needs. And And he addresses himself to them, highlighting one particular area from the vision of chapter one. He says, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so in every letter we're going to see at the beginning, Jesus will highlight one aspect of the vision that he gave John in chapter 1. Here he highlights how he holds the seven stars, and uh, he holds the seven stars, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Quick review. The seven stars represent the, the angels that are serving the church. Say seven churches, seven angels. And the churches are pictured here as lampstands. A reminder that God is at work in the churches by his spirit. That's the significance of the lampstand there. So Jesus starts off the letter to Ephesus, and he says, Don't forget, Ephesus, I'm with you. 
I've, my, I've got the, the seven stars. The angels are ministering, so I'm with you, and I am sovereign over you, and I'm, I'm working in your midst. So there's that initial affirmation there. And by the way, just before we run too far past that, that might be where you need to start this morning with encouragement. You just need to know that Jesus cares for you as a part of his church, that he's invested in you, that he's at work in our lives as a church community. There's so much encouragement there. When we're growing, yes. When we're stalled, we need that encouragement. If we're struggling, for sure, we need that encouragement to know that Jesus cares. And he's at work for the benefit of his church. All that to say, he gets to verse 2, and he starts off with the commendation of the church at Ephesus, the things that they're doing well. He says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. We don't have to do too much reading between the lines here to understand why it would have been hard for the church at Ephesus. Again, the culture did not like them. They were seen as a problem. There was a campaign, get rid of the church. It's, ne- it's bad for business. It's bad for Ephesus. What's bad for business is bad for Ephesus. Let's get rid of the church, right? That was like the slogan, right? They, they were against the church there. And yet in the midst of opposition, these believers had, well, the way he says it in verse 2, they had continued their works. They had lived as Christians. They were actually living out their, their faith. They had uh, labored. They were working, right, in response to their faith. They were, they were enduring. And that's literally, literally he says, in your endurance that you have endured. Specifically, you cannot tolerate evil people. I know, right? Evil people are the worst, right? What's he saying here? He's saying what happened was there was a moment in the church where people came in, and maybe they didn't come in like we're against you. They came in and said, you know what? You know how we could make this church better? If we didn't make such a big deal about the uh, Artemis thing, like what if we just didn't talk about it as much? What if we just kind of, what if we just, you know, made it, I mean, you know, we can still preach about Jesus and stuff, but just don't tell people not to do the Artemis thing. Like maybe we could do that. And so there were people who came in teaching a watered-down, warped version of the gospel. That they were making excuses for accommodations and compromises. And so Jesus commends the church at Ephesus, not only for their endurance, but also for the fact that a mark of that endurance was they were not letting that, that compromise attitude filter into the church. That they had recognized that for what it is, wickedness. So in whatever form evil was taking and people kind of coming into the church, they were calling it what it was. and They were saying, no, we're not into that here. We're worshiping Jesus, not Artemis. We're not making those compromises. You can see how there was a doctrinal component at the end of verse 2 where he says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Already in church history, there was an, uh, a certain, uh, you know, just gravitas to the, the apostles. And there was, so there were like the, the original apostles, and then there was like a second level of apostles that the, the church recognized as important leaders, okay? And so um, basically there were people showing up at Ephesus being like, yeah, I'm one of those. And what, what, why were they doing that? Because they wanted the best seats at the, in the restaurants. They wanted to be treated favorably. They wanted the benefits that went with being recognized as a, an apostle, the uh, deference, the authority, the fame, whatever it was. But, they, but the church at Ephesus had been like, not so fast, 
take this test. <laughs> These are my people, right? They're like, hold on a second. They had tested and evaluated the teaching of these individuals, and they found them to be liars. They had said they were about Jesus, but in actuality, they weren't teaching the true gospel. And Jesus says, good job, Ephesus. Like, way to go. You persevered. You're working hard. You're saying no to compromise. You're testing the teaching of these people that are, that are coming in to teach you. And if, they, if they're not you know, measuring up, you're saying you're lying. You're not actually an apostle of Jesus. And all of that is a function, really, of perseverance in verse 3, because he goes on to just identify specifically, like, I know you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. So they'd taken the hits. Maybe they had lost jobs. No doubt they had lost social status with certain people because of becoming believers. So they were enduring hardships. And Jesus says, I know you've done that, and you're doing the right thing. You're doing it for my name's sake, Jesus says, and so it's good, and you have not grown weary. So they're, they're, they're persevering in the faith. Well, just from these commendations, we learned this morning that perseverance and purity are a part of our calling as Christians. Perseverance and purity are a part of our calling. They are bound up in the nature of following Jesus in a broken world. A huge concern in Revelation is the recognition that to follow Jesus will not be easy in this world. And so there's a need for perseverance, for enduring. You could define perseverance as continuing on a, on a particular ad avenue of effort in spite of difficulty. So whatever you're doing, whether you're running a race or continuing a work project or whatever, when it gets hard, if you keep going, that's perseverance. When the, the load feels heavier and you keep going, that's perseverance. That's endurance. And so Jesus here commends the church at Ephesus for their perseverance. The question we just have to ask is, okay, wait a minute, is that me? If Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for persevering, am I persevering? Would I be commended for that? Am I continuing to follow Christ in spite of difficulty? Now that's not going to happen on accident. You're not going to accidentally persevere. There's a measure of preparedness here that I think is important. We just have to say, yes, we understand that it's not going to be easy. And we live in a culture that values uh, this particular idol or that particular idol, this pursuit, that pursuit. And it's different in different places in different times. But nonetheless, because they do, there's going to be some headwinds blowing against the church. And I will prepare to persevere. I'm going to mentally and spiritually prepare to continue to follow Jesus even when it gets hard. You need to ask the question this morning, what will tempt you to give up? Right? What will tempt you to give up? What, what's going to be the circumstance that's going to cause you to go, I don't know if I can keep doing this. This is hard. Is it when the people at work turn on you? The professor at the university? The kids at school? It could be the family. It could be a, just a general trial. It could be, you know, one, one more headline, one more opinion piece, one more comment on the social media. And you're just going, I, I don't know if I can keep up. I don't know if I can keep going. And here Jesus commends the church at Ephesus, and he says, I know your endurance, and I know you're enduring for my name's sake, and it's good. Keep on. Perseverance and purity are a part of our calling. Here specifically we're thinking of doctrinal purity. That a part of being the church is maintaining a distinctly Christian message. 
And you just might ask the question this morning, you know, when we think about testing these guys, you know, who claim to be apostles, they listened to what they taught, they evaluated it in light of the scripture, and they, when they found it not matching up, they said, nope, that's not it. You're, you're, not, you're lying, you're not actually an apostle. Well, we might ask the question today, are we spiritually gullible? Because we live in a spiritually gullible culture and age, where I, I just will tell you, uh, the pursuit of truth is almost always sacrificed for whatever works for me. So that, that's, where we, that's where we're at. Um, you, you've heard me bemoan the state of Christian bookstores. There used to be Christian bookstores where you actually, it, these are stores you actually went to to buy a book. It was like, it's like Amazon, but different. It was like you did your, it's like Amazon, but you did your own delivery. It was like how it worked. So it's like you would pick out the thing you want. You All right, so in these bookstores, we would bemoan that um, there wasn't, it was, they were Christian bookstores, meaning that in theory, they had Christian books in addition to knickknacks. So they had Christian knickknacks and then Christian books, right? And, uh, but the books that were there, some of them were great books. Most of them were not great books. Some of them were not Christian books. Like, meaning they claimed to be Christian books, but they didn't measure up. And so you had to discern, what am I buying? What am I reading? Like, what am I doing here? Now, we, we're kind of, even that is, is uh, you know, a thing of the past. We've gotten to the point now where we just, we just type it in on Amazon. I need help with my kids. Boom. And whatever comes up, we're going to buy it. We've got a lot of good reviews. We'll buy it. We're just, we're kind of in an age that's spiritually gullible where we'll just believe it because it's on the internet and it got positive reviews. I wonder, are we, would we be commended by Jesus for testing teaching? You know whose teaching you need to test first? The teaching that comes from this pulpit. That's why you should have your Bible out. You should be paying attention. You should be making sure that what's being proclaimed in this church is consistent with what we read in the Scriptures. Don't be gullible. The pursuit of truth must never be sacrificed for mere pragmatism. We need discernment. In Jude, verse 3, we are called to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. The, the content of Christianity is not changing. That is what is so awesome. The circumstances change, cultural realities change, but the message of Christianity isn't going anywhere. It is, it is static. It's not changing. So that means we can understand it and we can defend it, right? We can contend for it. And Jesus commends the church at Ephesus here. Perseverance and purity. You could ask, how am I doing in those areas? Am I persevering and am I pursuing the truth? Now, it wasn't all good news for the church at Ephesus, though. We get to verse 4, and this is where Jesus turns the corner here. And he says, but, okay, yes, you're persevering. This is awesome. You're pursuing the truth. This is good. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Other translations, you lost your first love. What is Jesus saying? He is saying to the church at Ephesus, perseverance and purity alone aren't enough. He's saying, love isn't optional. Now, what does he mean by love? What's he talking about? He doesn't specify here if it's love for God or if it's love for people. And the fact is, he doesn't specify which it is, because guess what? It's both. 
It's not one or the other because those two go together hand in hand. We learn this from Jesus in Matthew 22 where he answers that question. Which is the most important commandment? Jesus says, well, let me give you two because they're related. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He says, you got to love God with all that you are, and you got to love people. That's the calling. That's the foundation of the revelation of God for what he calls us to in life on a daily basis. Love God, love people. That's our vision as a church from Matthew 22. Love God, love people. And Jesus recognizes here that when the, the believers at Ephesus had first come to faith, they were marked by this love for God and love for others. This is not just an emotional love. And let's just be careful here to define our terms, right? This is not just a love of feeling. This is a love of choosing, right? There's a love of of responding to God and saying, "I, I recognize that God is beautiful and glorious, and so I am choosing to pursue him. It's a love that's bound up in action and commitment as much as it is emotion. In fact, we know that emotion will ebb and flow, but the, the, the commitment to pursue God with all that we are, that's what he's talking about here. Now, that love wasn't just a love for God, though. It also spilled the banks of that love for God and, and impacted others. It was love for people. And so Jesus recognizes here that, again, in Ephesus, those early, the early days of the church there, that they were marked by this love for others that was clear and evident And Jesus cautions the church at Ephesus, and he says, yes, you're persevering, this is great. Yes, you're pursuing doctrinal doctrinal purity, which is great. But love isn't optional. And frankly, in a church like ours, where we rightly value doctrine, good, good teaching, where we rightly value the Word of God, and where we rightly value perseverance in the faith, right, where we're calling each other to that on a daily basis, in a church like ours, where those things are important, we will be at danger, we will be at risk of losing, of abandoning our first love. Where we get so caught up in the persevering and the purity that we've forgotten who we're supposed to be doing it for. And so there's a warning here for us. Love isn't optional. You see, perseverance, if we just kind of flesh it out a little bit, perseverance without love, you know what that is? It's just effort. It's just effort. So that might be reading the Bible. You can read the Bible like that. I'm supposed to read the Bible. Reading the Bible is a good thing to do. I'm going to do the annual read. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the Bible. So I check it off. I read it this week. Read it, read it today, read it, read it tomorrow, read it, check it. I got five days in a row. I'm reading the Bible, persevering in that. But if there's no accompanying growth in love for God or love for people, it's just effort. Maybe it's gathering with the church. You have to, you have to persevere to gather with these people. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, Wow. My parents are in town from California, and they've been in town for two days, and they've complained like seven days' worth for the cold weather. <laughs> so, like, so to gather with a church means actually going out in the cold. I like, had to get out in the cold and come to the Oh, can't do it. It's just too hard. Santa, let's Santa Barbara go home. All right, whatever. So uh, gathering with a church, is it, yeah, yes, that's a thing. We're supposed to do that. It's a good thing, and we persevere with gathering in the church. But if you gather with the church faithfully, and your church attendance record in my office is perfect, you've got that record going. I don't have such a record, but anyway, right? If that, if that was a thing, and you had such perfect attendance record, and you have not grown in your love for God, and you are not growing in your love for others, then it's just effort. There's no spiritual value to it. 
Or maybe it's serving people where you're volunteering and you're giving of your time because you know you're supposed to and it's been modeled for you. And so you're filling spots and you're stepping in there and you're putting in the reps and you're doing the time and you're doing it. But there's no love there. It's just effort. Perseverance is good. Pursuit of purity is good. But love isn't optional. If perseverance without love is just effort, then pursuit of doctrinal purity without love is just knowledge. And as much as we love the truths of God's word, the end, the goal, the purpose of our pursuit of God in his word is not so that we remember more facts about God. It is so that we love God more and therefore can love people better. That is the end game. Now, it's not an either-or, and this is, by the way, where churches today can get really sideways. They read this warning from Jesus, and they say, oh, sweet, let's just focus on love, and let's ditch the concern for doctrinal purity. Jesus commends Ephesus for doctrinal purity. Doctrinal purity is right and good. We should be testing the teaching. We need to be doing that. But love isn't optional. It's never teaching without love. It's never love without teaching, but it's never teaching without love. So we're not just pursuing knowledge for the sake of pursuing knowledge. We're talking about heresy hunting here, where we're just concerned to catch people in theological error without caring for their souls, or winning theological arguments. Or just basically collecting more facts about God. Sometimes, sometimes we treat our relationship with God like, like the back of a baseball card. You ever know people that could memorize facts on the back of a baseball card really easily? It's like, oh yeah, I got, ton, I got tons of facts about God. I do all this stuff, 66 books. Old Testament, New Testament together. 39 the old, 27 the new. Old Testament, mostly Hebrew. New Testament, Greek. Yeah, let me tell you that. We talk about genres. We talk about genres all day. We talk about the history of Israel. We talk about all the different you know, important dates, 971, 722, 586 B.C., all those important dates. You know, when, you ready? When the kingdom split, when the northern kingdom fell, when the southern kingdom fell. We talk about those days. Which, which tribes settled the other side of the Jordan River? I could tell you those. Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. Absolutely. You know what those are? Those are facts. They come from the Bible. They do not help you unless you love God more and love people more as a result. Love isn't optional. Jesus makes this so clear, not just in how he answers that question about what's the most important command in the law in Matthew 22, but even later in Matthew 23 where he's dealing with the religious leaders of his days, the most religious people, the most Bible-oriented people of his day, right? He was dealing with them, and you'll remember in Matthew 23, he he says, Woe! Woe to you, Pharisees, because you're hypocrites. But specifically, he says, you're whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You look good on the outside. You're putting in the effort. But Jesus says, but you, inside you are a rotten carcass. Because you don't love God and you don't love people. Love isn't optional. Or you could go to John 5, where Jesus basically dealing with the same group of people, different circumstance. But he says, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. See, these were Bible people. 
But the problem was they were about the Bible. They just weren't about who wrote it. Listen, we, this is every week, right? We go through the Word of God together. We acknowledge that this is the Word of God. But what is important is not that you worship this book, but what's important is that you love the one who's given it to us, the one who's revealed in it. Love isn't optional. My friend Johnny Edwards said it this way. He said, He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection, and by affection there he means passion for God. If you have doctrinal knowledge and speculation without that, you're not engaged in the business of true religion. Whatever it is, it's not the real deal. I wonder... How's your love for God, and how is your love for people? I mean, that's the question here Jesus wants us to ask. Man, I hope I haven't abandoned my first love. I hope I haven't abandoned pursuit of the one who loves me. I hope I haven't abandoned living in light of that love for me and how I treat others. One of my other friends, John Newton, he He writes about the different stages of spiritual growth. He says, young Christians have an advantage over some some of us more mature Christians because they have an advantage in sensible fervency, was how he said it. Sensible fervency. Like the fervency part, they were passionate. And they were passionate because it was a response to the gospel. So we, we all could maybe relate to the fact that when you first become a believer, here you are, passionate for the Lord. And it's a good passion for God. And yet, as you mature in the faith, and as you grow, and as life happens, sometimes that fervency kind of wanes a bit. And we've lost it a little bit. And Jesus says, just be careful. Just be careful. Perseverance is good. Doctrinal purity is good. But be careful that you don't abandon your first love. You keep chasing me, Jesus says. So how are you doing in your love for God, your love for people? We all need to grow in this. No matter who we are. There's room for growth. So the obvious question is, well, what if I'm struggling here? What if I'm not feeling it? Watch verse 5. Jesus gives us clear instruction. He actually gives us three commands. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Let's just pause right there. We'll get these three commands and we'll unpack the rest of it. But he says, remember, repent, and I'll say return there for the last one. Okay, so remember then how far you have fallen. Jesus says, remember how much you used to be passionate for me, and you used to love me. Remember how much you used to love others. Remember that and compare the difference. And the point of remembering the the past is to say, I actually can be that person again. I, I don't have to settle for losing my first love. I don't have to settle for slowing down in my pursuit of God. I can continue in that fervency, but I've got to do it purposefully. I've got to look at it and say, yes, I remember that that time when I was at that retreat or that time after I become a believer, that time I was in that Bible study and I was passionate for the Lord. And I can remember what that meant to me and how how it impacted my life and how I loved others. And I can chase that again, Jesus says. He says, remember, think back to what it was. Secondly, though, he says, repent. Repent of what? Repent of losing that first love. Repent of failing to love God. And love people. Which means we acknowledge the failure. And it's, we're, we're safe to acknowledge the failure because of the cross. Remember, 
Jesus is the one who, who has the seven stars in his hand, and he's the one in the midst of the lampstands. He's got us. We're his. So we can say, yeah, I, I'm struggling to love God right now, and I repent of that. I'm struggling to love people right now, and I repent of that. Remember, repent and return. It says in verse 5, And do the works you did at first. Get after it. I like this, because Jesus is like, don't just go to a retreat and think about it. Maybe you should go to a retreat. Don't forget to come home, though. <laughs> right? Come home and get after it. Return to those works again. What works? The works that are driven by love for God and love for people. So there were apparently specific outflows, like actual actions, words, attitudes that uh, the Ephesian church had failed to engage in because they weren't loving God and loving people. And so Jesus says, remember what it was like. Yep, repent of it, the failure to do it, absolutely. But don't stop there. Get after it. Go. There's this calling to then engage in action. And what's at at stake here? Well, he says, otherwise, verse 5 in the middle there, otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus is not saying that people who had trusted Christ will not be believers. He's saying that your church will lose its distinctive witness in the community. And so Jesus says, I'll just take you out. And sadly, sometimes that happens where a church gets so caught up in pursuit of perseverance and purity or whatever else, and they forget to love God and love people, that they fail to function as the church in the community. And often, those churches die. They cease to exist. Because they're not really churches. So Jesus says, don't, listen, <laughs> love isn't optional. It's not like, oh, well, as long as we're about the right doctrine, I mean, hopefully maybe we'll get there. No. As long as I grip my teeth and show up next week, right, no matter how bad it is, then I'm getting points for it. No! Love isn't optional, he says. Now, he actually commends them again in verse 6 for something positive. I think it's related. He says, yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Those Nicolaitans. Yeah. We don't know who these guys were. We, we know, this is what we know, okay? We think, based on, there's a couple different hints here in, in this letter and in the general circumstances of the other letters, that these were individuals who were pushing compromise as an agenda in the church. Like, let's just dial it back. These are the people that were saying, probably specifically, we can still go to the uh, worship services for the pagan goddess Artemis. We can still participate in that festival, and we can still offer a sacrifice. We don't really mean it, but hey, you know, like you just gotta, we gotta function in this world, so let's just go. We know we don't really mean it, but let's just go and offer the sacrifice, because otherwise my neighbor's gonna think I'm weird, or otherwise I might lose my job, or otherwise, you know, we're gonna be on outs with the administrator of the town, or the, the idol salesmen are gonna be frustrated with us. So let's just go and like, you know, just wink at it, but we know, we got our fingers crossed, like we're not really doing it. So that's presumably what is being pushed here by the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, you're right to say no to them. But just make sure you're saying no for the right reason. Like, yes, we don't want to compromise. Absolutely. We want to maintain our distinctively Christian witness. How do we do that? The best way to maintain a distinctively Christian witness in your life is to love God with all that you are and love people as much as you love yourself. That will blow people's minds. 
And when we love God with that love, we're not going to participate in that sacrifice. And when we're loving people, even when it's awkward and weird, it will be notable to them that we cared for them and we pursued them. Love isn't optional. So we remember, repent, and return. Just to revisit those three commands briefly, I want to encourage you to remember what God has done in your life. Maybe this morning you need to remember back to when you first became a believer. Rekindle that passion that you had by focusing on God's grace given to you in Jesus. Remember the work that God has done in your life and be blown away at his stubborn, persistent grace that hasn't gone anywhere. Maybe remember the example of others who have modeled for us what it looks like to continue to love God with all that we are and to love people. Allow yourself to get stirred up. Seriously. That's why we sing as a gathered body. Did you know that? We just sing to, we sing to mess you up. <laughs> like, the, the point of the singing, right, in honoring God together, to do it together, is so that our hearts would be stirred. Because there are ways that your heart is stirred up from a song that it isn't by just a statement of fact. And so when we sing it, we're, we're saying, I'm opening myself up to get stirred up. Now listen, I am just full disclosure, all right, between us and the internet. Uh, some of us are less willing to be stirred up than others. Okay? And I just want to encourage you, it's not about how well you sing. It's not about... Uh, you know, it's about that you love Jesus and you're okay to be stirred up. You're okay to get riled up in that love. And I'm not talking about physically, like that doesn't matter. Okay, you can stand there as still as you want. The point is, you're willing to get stirred up and remember how good God is and what he's done for you and maybe how far you've fallen from that love for him. So remember and then repent. Just our... Repent of loveless obedience or loveless pursuit of knowledge. Repent, repent of, of just gritting your teeth and bearing it without actually loving God and loving people. Now, sometimes love means we obey even when we don't feel like it. So I think that's important to acknowledge. So it's not like we're saying, oh, you should only obey if you feel like you want to obey. Well, no, we live in the real world. And sometimes love says, I value God, and even though I'm not in the mood to gather with the church, or even though I'm not in the mood to serve that person right now, even though I would, would rather, if I could just have my way, I would rather do something else, but because I love God, and because I love these people, therefore I'm going to choose to do something that's hard, or that goes against what I would prefer to do at the moment. So sometimes loving God, returning to that first love, sometimes that means I choose to obey, even when my, my heart's not you know, wanting to at that moment. But what we're talking about not doing is I'm not saying I'm obeying just because I'm supposed to. Or I'm obeying just because my family expects me to. Or I'm just going to obey just because. Now, you need, to, you need to obey, absolutely. And sometimes out of love for God, we choose to obey when our hearts aren't in it. But at the end of the day, we address that motivation. And it's a different thing to say, God, I love you and therefore I'm going to do this in obedience to you, even though I don't feel like it, that's different than saying, I'm just doing this because I'm worried about what my family thinks of me. Or I'm worried about what other people are going to think of me. So we repent of loveless obedience or loveless pursuit of knowledge. 
and then return. Go back to the Lord. Grow in your love for God. Choose to value Him in your words, your attitudes, and your actions. Chase Him. Maybe it's picking back up in care group. Maybe it's getting back into that Bible study. Maybe it's re-engaging with that discipleship relationship. Maybe it's calling a pastor and having a meeting, calling your shepherd, having a meeting, getting some encouragement. But what Jesus says is don't settle for the loveless life as a Christian because that's not what I've called you to. Love isn't optional. And therefore, we don't compromise. We're not going to give in to temptation. This is a daily battle, and that's where verse 7 When Jesus concludes here this letter to the church at Ephesus, that's where he settles here. Now note this language, though, in verse 7. He says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This statement is the most clear affirmation that this is for everybody. Now that's prophetic language. Let anyone who has ears to hear. Jesus is saying, not everybody is spiritually alive and awake, but for those who are, this is for you. So if you're spiritually alive and awake, this is for you. doesn't matter if you live at Ephesus or not. Let everyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. By the way, I also notice churches plural, so everybody listen to all the letters. So that's why we know they're all applicable to today. All right? Now, what does he say? To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's going to repeat this statement to the one who conquers, to the one who's victorious, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers what? To the one who conquers the temptation to give in. To just not love. Or to not persevere. Or the temptation to compromise. Maybe there's a little bit more weight on that one because that's the last thing he mentioned. To be careful about the compromise. Be careful just going along with the world. But one way or another, he says, it's a daily battle and you have to choose to fight it. You have to choose to overcome that temptation. Now he's equipped you by his spirit. So you can be victorious, and you don't get the glory for that. And he doesn't forgive you because of that. But he's saying, I've already forgiven you, so get out there and fight. Fight the desire to give up. Fight the the leaking out of your love for me or love for others. Fight the loss of that love. You see, here, conquering means loving to the end. And what is the end? What's the benefit? It's the tree of life. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the tree that uh, Adam and Eve lost access to because of sin back in Genesis 3. The, The idea is they've lost that eternal blessing, sustenance, provision, peace, satisfaction. And we have reference to it here. There's not a lot of other references to the tree of life in the scriptures. But then we get to the end of Revelation and we'll find out there's a a big focus on the tree of life. That in the New Jerusalem, the tree of life lines this river that flows out of the throne. And the people have access to the tree of life all the time and eat from it regularly. Do you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of blessing and peace and satisfaction and provision. And that provision will last forever. That's what we're chasing. That's what everybody wants. And that's what we have in Christ. And so when you're tempted to give up on Jesus for something else, because of pressure from the culture, because of personal failure, because of frustration with circumstances, 
because of persecution, whatever it is, when we're tempted to give up on Jesus, he reminds us here, don't forget, all this is for your best interest. (laughs) So don't give up. Overcome the temptation. Overcome the temptation to tolerate loveless obedience. Overcome the temptation to compromise with the culture. Overcome the temptation to just be all about knowledge and to not care about people. Overcome the temptation to sin. Conquer it. In this case, that means loving to the end and receiving that blessing and that provision. What do we need to learn this morning? Love isn't optional. I don't know which avenues you need to pursue, but I do know this. It's abundantly clear that God has called us to chase Him with all that we are. And you've got room to grow there, so grow. Get after Him. God has called us to love people. And it's hard work loving people. And you've got room to grow there too. And I would encourage you this morning to chase that, to pursue, to do better. Not because you're earning favor with God, but because you already have favor with God. And remember that love isn't optional. So let's persevere. Let's pursue purity. But let's do so without forgetting our first love. We should listen to my friend Jonathan Edwards again. He said, yeah, love is only one of the affections, but it is the first and chief of them. And it's the fountain of all the others. He's on to something there. There's a lot lot going on in our lives. But if we don't have our love rightly ordered, if we don't love God and love people, then the rest of it's going to be a problem. So Jonathan Edwards says, yeah, get your love right. Because love isn't optional. Would you bow your heads with me and we'll ask God to help us to love him and love others. Lord, we thank you for these words of commendation and concern here in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. Lord, we know it's a struggle. And we would confess even that you know better than we do our failures to love you and to love others. Lord, we ask for your help. Help us as we seek to persevere and help us as we pursue doctrinal purity, Lord, that we would never do so at the expense of loving you and loving people. Lord, help us to to strike this balance that you call us to here. And Lord, help us to remember who you are, what you've done for us. Lord, help us to repent as we need to. And Lord, help us to return, to once again live in light of this love for you. Lord, protect us from compromise with the culture. Lord, it's so such a big temptation. It's so... Uh, so easy for us to do that, Lord. We need help. And so we ask that you would help us to remember this morning that love isn't optional. And may people around us take notice of our growth and our love for you and love for others. And Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning, especially who are really struggling. Maybe they haven't told anybody. But Lord, I pray that they would see in this passage a clear path to restoring love for you, returning to what has been abandoned and to growing because of your love for us. Lord, we thank you that we can look forward to eating from the tree of life forever. Lord, may that encourage us even now to persevere in love for you and love for others. We ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.